We're doing something different today. And if I sit here, can you still see me? Okay, I can see you, so you must be able to see me. So there, that's good. So um, for those of you who weren't here last week or um, didn't, didn't uh, stream or re- look at the recording, you probably have no idea what we're doing right now. What we're doing is we spent the last two months going through a red-letter study, or just starting a red-letter study. And so that is going to be the words of Jesus that is sometimes printed in red ink in certain editions of the Bible. And um, after doing that for seven weeks, I started to get some questions and a little pushback, you know, especially centered around John 3.16 and the radically different way that we interpreted and translated that from an Aramaic point of view. And so I thought, okay, you know what, it's time to stop and consolidate. Instead of pushing forward with more information, let's stop and take a little break and see if we can get back on the same page to a certain degree. And so last week what I did was kind of a summary of the method and the madness of the effect, why we do what we do, what our mission is, what it isn't, and how it all works with us as a setup for today. And I did ask if y'all had questions and some enthusiastic hands went up. So um, today is just question and answers. You know, I playfully called it pound the pastor. And if you'd like to do that, that's cool. You know, but uh, before we get started with this, I want to set some rules, which reminds me of (laughs) that great line in Butch and Sundance rules in a knife fight, you know, (laughs) the rules are simply that, first of all, there is no question that's off the table. And uh, I am I'm open to take anything. And, uh, you know, the puffball questions, what's my favorite color, those are appreciated. But I'm not expecting them here. Um, the point is, if there's a question that you have, if there's something that is not clear to you, and especially if there's something you're feeling resistance toward or something that you're pushing back on, I guarantee you, you're not the only one. And not just in this room, but through the camera and beyond. So if you have something like that, this is the place to ask it. Now, the second rule is, I am not the Bible answer man. That is not, that is not my position. I never wanted to be, and I'm not now. I, I know the Bible. Many people know it much better than I do. But the point is, is that Our approach, my approach to the Bible, is not to know it emphatically inside and outside every single verse. The purpose of the Bible for me is to highlight what Jesus is teaching and to enforce it, enforce it, to reinforce it. Um, What Jesus does in his ministry is pick and choose which of the books of the Old Testament, our Old Testament, their scripture, that he brings to the fore because it reinforces his view of the Father. And those that don't, he doesn't bring up at all. You know, I believe that it's the same thing here. The Bible is showing us who the Father is, but only if we approach it in a certain way. And so I like to approach the Bible topically. And I like to approach the Bible always from the point of view of the Father's love. Because if we lose that, then we've lost everything that Jesus is about. And so holding on to that thread is the first and foremost piece. And then, how does the Bible illuminate that? How does the Bible just expand that? How does the Bible let that love flow into all the various nooks and crannies of life? Our life, the lives of those who wrote it, and how does it relate to us? And so that's the way I'm always approaching Scripture. Not every single jot and tittle, but 
How can we allow it to flow? And as we said last week, always approaching it metaphorically. That doesn't mean that the literal meaning is untrue, but that the metaphorical is layered at least on top of, if it's not supplanting the literal truth, it's at least layered on top of giving us this deeper spiritual meaning, which is what the purpose of scripture is. Yes, it's a history book as well, but that's not its main purpose. Its main purpose, at least to us here, 2,000 years later, 2,500 years later, is spiritual. It's meant to illuminate this relationship we have with God that will allow us to do two things. Be able to accept life on life's terms, good, bad, and ugly, and then to live with hope and gratitude. If we're doing those two things, if we are clear enough to be able to be present to our moments so that we can really be in relationship with each other and be able to allow our choices, the decisions we make, to be based on what's right in front of us and not from all of the trappings of the past, then we're in what Jesus is calling kingdom, that intimate connection, not only with each other, but also with God's spirit, which is invisible to us, but still present. That's what we're after. From there, all of the, all of the magic happens. From that place, from that platform, living in kingdom, everything that Jesus is about can take shape. But without that, it doesn't work. This isn't a teaching of obedience. It's not about rules and laws. And as long as we are still holding on to that notion, as long as we are trying to perform to earn acceptance, then we have missed completely what Jesus is all about. And so when I answer your questions today, it's going to be in that vein, all right? There may be questions that you stump me with and I won't be able to answer, but I'll get the answers at least as far as, you know, germane to what you're talking about. But I'll be trying to bring it always back to the Father's love because that's why I'm here. And I hope that's why you're here as well. All right. Dems to rules. And uh, now the, the floor is open. I did, um, at, at Brandon's suggestion, I did send out a... Uh, an email and some missives to our folks that are mostly streaming us or out of state. And I did get a few of those. I have those on a sheet behind me and we can pull those out at times, but let's start with uh, whoever is uh, first. Do you had a... Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, because um, we may have some long questions. That's a good idea. Okay. You want to start, buddy? So um, I've learned a lot from, from you and the, the Effect community. Um, I mean, I think your whole point about understanding Jesus as he was understood in the first century by first century Jews with their culture and their idioms and um, versus our 21st Western filter. And then, you know, I take it to the next level as an engineer, you know, very... Uh, you know, of course you do. Intellectual. And one of the first things I learned uh, was just being content with things not being clear and being content with um, paradoxes, um, that Jesus was uh, all about love. He was a man. I mean, he, he learned as a man and understands these things and all about transformation, everything we talk about. Um, and even last week, I loved it because you summarized everything. It was like your Sermon on the Mount. You know, you were <laughs> summing up some points. And one of the points was, uh, again, about the, looking at the Bible with love and no fear. And yet, 
you know, so that's fear at the effect. We, we teach love, we teach fear, no fear. And yet you're here on the radio and the far, you know, maybe some, some preachers, it's, it's guilt, it's fear, it's almost hate, it's almost anger. Uh, and then I look at books like that are not from Jesus, really, but, you know, Romans and Revelation, and they seem to preach the fear doctrine. So I wrestle with that, and I don't know exactly how to handle it. Go ahead and hang on to the mic and you can pass it to the next person. Um, all right, so you heard that. So we've got this built-in contradiction, it seems like, this, this disconnect between some of what we see in Romans and what we see in Revelation and what we see in Jesus and certainly from what we have heard from here. So how do we deal with that? First thing that I want to stress, again, is that... If we make the choice that we are really followers of Jesus, then we are also making the choice to accept God the way Jesus is presenting him. Jesus is presenting God as completely a degreeless lover, an unconditional lover, that, that this love is just as indiscriminate as the rain and the sunshine. He says these things over and over again to try to get them across to us in as many metaphors as he can possibly come up with to try to get lights on over everybody's head, right? The sun and the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. You, no matter what time you come to work, early morning, late in the day, you're going to get paid the same. You know, he, the, the prodigal son, so on and so forth. All about the absolute unconditionality of God's love, that we can't earn it and we can't lose it because we can't earn it and so on and so forth. So as I've said many times before, and there was a point in my early uh, spiritual formation, where I finally just had to say, because I was f facing so many of the same kind of conundrums that you're talking about here, and not only that, I was in a church that preached that kind of, of guilt and fear. I just had to take a stake and put it in the ground and drive it as deeply as I could at the point of the Father's love, and then hold on for dear life. Because nothing else was making sense, and I was being blown about everywhere. But I realized that if I held on to the Father's love, and then let the different interpretations and translations of scripture and my own feelings about it blow about in the breeze as they will. But hanging on to the Father's love, I was in a much better place than if I drove my stake in the ground at the point of law and let God's love blow about in the breeze. Because as soon as I lost that love, I lost that good news, all bets were back off again. And I was back to performing for, uh, for God's love and acceptance. So this was a choice that I made. It's a choice each one of you is going to have to make. But I'm telling you, for my money and reading Jesus, this is what he's about and this is what he's saying. So everything else that we read in Scripture then that seems to contradict that, I'm going to say, is a misunderstanding on our part. Because that's who Jesus is and that's who he is saying his father's is. Now, I realize that's subjective, but let's break it down a little bit and see where we can come, what we can come up with here. First of all, and I said this um, last week as well, any interpretation of Scripture that causes you to live in fear is a misinterpretation of Scripture. Scripture is telling us over and over again, do not fear. Yes, it says fear the Lord, but that's a word that means awe, that means respect. It doesn't mean terror of, right? It means that we are accepting a, a relationship with God that is submitted. We are the dependent. We are the receiver. Right? 
We are the submitted. We are the creature. If you want to say it that way, we're accepting our own creaturehood. That's fear of the Lord. It's taking away the hubris. It's taking away the pride. It's taking away the sense of self-sufficiency. That is the opposite of the anavim spirit that we've talked about. That's the essence of, of kingdom, without which we don't get Jesus' message. So scripture is all about not fearing. So what is it when we look at, for instance, Romans and look at Paul? What's, what's going on there? I think there's several things that are happening. First of all, I, I believe, maybe I have to rehabilitate Paul a little bit here because he's often looked at as a misogynist because he wants to keep women in subservient positions. He's looked at sometimes as amoral because he wants to keep people in slavery. Just if you're a slave, stay a slave. If you're single, stay single. If you're married, stay married. If you're a woman, stay in subservience and submission. Don't rock the boat. Right? Then he's talking about law and he's talking, he seems to be talking about punishment and, and all these various things. So what's going on with Paul? Now, some Christians will say that Paul took a left turn and actually subverted the message of Jesus. And of course, a lot of non-Christians or ex-Christians will say that as well. But I don't think so. I believe Paul is in line with Jesus' message, but it's tuned to a different audience. First of all, Paul is speaking to Gentiles Jesus is speaking to Jews, so he is going to be speaking a language of rational logic, whereas Jesus is the poet speaking to Eastern people in an Eastern language. Paul is speaking in Greek to Greeks. So right away you have a difference there. There's a difference between micro and macro. Jesus is speaking one-on-one to people trying to turn on individual heart lights. Paul is administering new church bodies all over the eastern Mediterranean. And he's doing it often by surrogate, sending people in for him. He's doing it by letter. And as soon as you have a group of people, you have to have rules. You have to have laws. Not only that, all of these nascent churches new churches by, that were being initiated by Paul were also being blown about by all these other groups that were cropping up all over the place as well. He had to try to distinguish his own groups, his own churches, the ones that he believed were actually following Jesus' way from all the other ones. Some of them are really getting out there and getting pretty crazy. So he had to do all the defining. He had to do all of the boxing in. He had to set the rules. Remember, when you have letters, epistles, they're always answering a question. People didn't just write in those days just to say hello. The expense of the materials, the fact that hardly anybody read and wrote anyway, and trying to get them to where they needed to go was an expensive proposition. They were only done when you had to do them. So when there was a problem that was coming to him, he was hearing about in one of his churches, then he would write a letter. So we always have the answers, but not the questions. So it's like a Jeopardy game, right? I got the answer. So the question is, what is the question? What is it he's trying to answer? So some of the questions that he was asked that he had to answer, he's answering as best he can for the moment in time and the people that he is talking to. You sometimes see him working it out. He says, you know, I think this might be from the Lord, but I'm not quite sure. So it might just be from me, but anyway, here you go. And he gives the answer. You see him working things out because he's trying to hold these groups together. So when he says, if you're a slave, stay a slave. And if you're a single, single. And married, married. And if you're a woman, you know, keep your head covered. Don't ever teach a man. To him, Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. That's what the first followers of Jesus believed. And so the time was short. And not only that, the boot of Rome was on everyone so severely, and not only Rome on these new Christians, but the Jews as well. 
So if you start pushing the envelope socially with all these things and say, hey, I am now, I'm a slave, but I'm a new creature in Christ, and so I get to be free, well, that's just going to create more social problems, more unrest, more oppression. And he's saying the time is so short. Focus on your inside. Focus from within. Get that relationship right, because that's what's important anyway. Not asserting your social freedom, your social justice. And even if I think if Paul knew that there were 2,000 years and counting now since his letters, he would also still say, fight the internal revolution first. Get yourself right internally before you turn and try to solve your community's problems. Because if you aren't balanced on the inside, if you aren't in kingdom on the inside, you're going to create more problems than you are solving because you're going to be bringing your ego into all of this. So some of the things that we see in Paul that look judgy, you know, that look misogynistic, <laughs> chauvinistic, and, and amoral, I think are because he's trying to work out within a certain place and time what's going on. Now, secondly, the big fight that was going on in the 40s and 50s and 60s CE after the crucifixion was between Jews who believed that anyone who followed Jesus had to be a Jew first. That is, you had to be circumcised, you had to be following all of the, um, the dietary and purity codes of the Torah and of Judaism before you could be a follower of Jesus. And that was the first fight that Paul had. It's even in Acts where he has to go back to Jerusalem and get dispensation from the leaders in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, that that is not so. And the leaders agreed with him. The Gentiles, the Greeks that he's talking to, they didn't need to be circumcised and follow kosher and all of that. They just needed to come under the teaching of Jesus and follow that. But that doesn't mean that that shut it all down and all these other churches that he's working. Every single letter of Paul has this element where he's fighting between the Judaizers, those who thought that everyone needed to be a Jew, and the ones that just were following Jesus as Gentiles. That fight is really at the core of what he's doing and what he's teaching. You will especially see it in Galatians. He's angry in Galatians. And he's kicking and screaming and having a bit of a tantrum, you know, those who think that the, Jew, the Gentiles must be circumcised, I hope the knife slips, is basically what he's saying there. You know, may they mutilate themselves. So he's angry. But in Romans, he's doing much of the same thing. You know, this, this pinnacle of Christian theology that he writes here is trying to distinguish between the law the way that the Jews understood it and the law of freedom, the law of liberty, as James coins the term, and as Jesus was teaching it. And so, so much of what we see there is him trying to make the distinction between the two and to try to get the people out from under the law. So even as he's talking about the law, he's also talking about how Gentiles become a law to themselves. He's talking about Jesus has a finished work on the cross, which ends the reign of this sacrificial system where you have to keep going back to the temple and kill something. You know, he's trying to get the people away from that idea. And so that imagery there that looks so legalistic and looks like he's hanging on to this is really tuned to his own audience. I believe, this is my interpretation, tuned to his own audience to get them to realize, not just the Gentiles, because they don't, they're not part of it anyway, but to get the Jews to understand. We don't need to do this anymore. 
It's not about going back and sacrificing every little time we come out out of kilter. We don't have to go back and become purified at the temple again every time we do something that is legally unclean. Because Jesus brings a whole different relationship to our God that changes everything. And I think that really is the crux of what he's trying to do there. And so if we ever do, and maybe we should, go through some of Romans. And I I would... uh, encourage you. If you want to read Romans, have alongside whatever uh, translation you're using a copy of The Message by Eugene Peterson. Because if you read Romans, he does such a good job with it. If he wrote Romans in The Message, it just comes alive in a completely different way. But use the two together, because The Message is a paraphrase. And if you use an actual translation, we use the NASB here. That's what you see on the screens, New American Standard. Um, use the two together and see if that can get you closer in. And then maybe we'll take at least some chapters of Romans and take a look at it and see if we can break it down further. But that would be a kind of a top-down look. Does that at least get close to answering the question? Okay. You know, and you also mentioned Revelation, but Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and that gets into a whole different ball of wax. And we've talked about that before. I don't know if we want to uh, spend a lot of time on that. But again, once again, Any interpretation of revelation that causes you to live in fear is a misinterpretation. Apocalyptic books came after the national catastrophe. In the case of Revelation, it came after, it was written about the end of the first century, after the first Jewish Roman War between 66 and 70 CE. So the national catastrophe has happened. The temple is down. Jerusalem is a smoking crater. How do you still understand that God's promises and love will continue on when everything that you think it meant to be a part of his kingdom is gone. Just like the earlier Ezekiel and Daniel were written after the Babylonian captivity and so on and so forth. They are there to try to bring us through. They start with the horrible imagery and then take us out, but it's all written figuratively and in code and doesn't mean what it seems to mean if it seems to mean that it is contradicting Jesus' notion of the God's unconditional love. Okay? Enough said on that? Okay. Kathleen! Is the Bible... I wasn't saying anything, but now you got me so confused. <laughs> Did you hear she said, I wasn't going to say anything, but now you've got me so confused. <laughs> Is the Bible God's word to his people... Or humans' words to God. Ooh, yo! All right, that is the central question. You know, as I was starting to walk down this path, thanks, Scott. As I was starting to walk down this path, what I started to realize that everything that Christians fight about is Scripture. It's really Scripture. That's what we're fighting about. And if we're fighting about something that looks like it is apart from Scripture, it's only because it refers back to Scripture. That's because we are, as Islam says, the people of the book. We are the ones who put the book at the forefront and the center of our faith, and so we always are referring back to that. So everything is going to hinge on how do you understand the inspiration of Scripture, which is exactly what you're asking. How do you understand that? Did God, you know, on the extreme right of the spectrum, you have what's called divine dictation. Did God actually possess the bodies of the writers of Scripture and write through them exactly what he wanted so that every word is what God meant and every word is displaying his nature and his, his, his personhood as God. Or on the far left of the spectrum, is it more like divine illumination 
like Shakespeare. It just it just shows so much of human connection and the the, the deep uh, things that we all face as life. Or is it somewhere in the middle? There is this huge spectrum in all these different takes on on, on scriptural inspiration. Now, the way that we were taught, both in the Catholic Church and in the Evangelical Church, is that it is God's word. The actual word on the page is inspired. Every word and the entire thing. So it's, it's verbal, it's plenary, that means everything, and it's inerrant. Well, that's a tough bar to, to deal with, right? So if we're going to interpret Scripture, we have to first decide how do we look at this. Now, if God was a sole author of all of Scripture, all the books of Scripture, 66 books, right? 39 in the old, 27 in the new. If God is a sole author, then you would expect there to be a consistency, consistency of language, a consistency of thought, and a consistency of personality and tone and all of that because there's a single author through all those books. And remember, the, the writing of scripture you know, comprises some at least 1,500 years of human history. Is that what we see when we look at these actual books and get back to the closest we have to original manuscripts? There are no original manuscripts of any of the scripture. Even if we found one, we would never know that it's original at this point. You know? But when we look at them, and we look at them forensically, look at them with scholars, looking at them absolutely at the language and, and at the genre and all of that, what we find is anything but that. It's all over the map. Not only that, we find that individual books are compilations. The book of Isaiah probably has at least three authors and may span a period of three or four hundred years in the writing of it. And we can see where the seams are. We see that it moves from poetry to prose. We see that it moves from, from a different tone. We see that it moves from different language levels, you know. How, how polished is the writing? How rough is the writing? It's all over the place. So we have to say at least that God allowed the writers of Scripture to write as they would write as a human being, with their knowledge of language, with their personality, with their tone, with their knowledge of science, culture, right, worldview, because that's what we see in the record. And so I am uh, persuaded, and I'll tell you what I'm convinced of, that the Bible is man's expression to God, not God's expression to man. These are people who were living a relationship. In other words, the authors were inspired. The words they wrote were words that we were, they were free to write. And so the, that allows them to write as they understood it. Now it's up to us to be able to, to deal with that. And to, it's, it's our burden to try to understand what they were trying to say. So this helps us in so many ways. When God is said that he authorized the Jews to roll into some town and kill every last dog, cat, and pony, and child, and woman, and man. Um, and he authorized that. How do we deal with God as a genocidal maniac? How do we deal with the angry God as he appears to be in the judgmental God? Well, now we can look at and, and say, honestly, this was the worldview of the ancient Jews. This is how they understood their world, that God was unopposable. God was one God, the monad, right? And anything that happened only happened because God willed it and for no other reason than because it happened. If it happened, God willed it because nothing could happen that God didn't will. So if their army rolled in and committed genocide, then God willed it, and that's the way they wrote it. Jesus never uses a passage like that 
to teach his people in his lifetime, in his ministry, because it does not jive with what he knows his father to be. Does that make the scriptures wrong? No, it doesn't make them wrong. We have to interpret them in a different way if we are to understand this. Now, I know that this is a really controversial topic and subject, and some of you may violently disagree with what I'm saying. Remember, this is what I'm convinced of. It doesn't need to be what you're convinced of. But it is the way that I've been able to continue to love, revere the scriptures, to continue to use them for 25, 30 years and counting now, and still see absolute relevance in them for my life and in our ministry here. Because I can still hang on to my stake driven in the ground at the point of the Father's love and not throw out all of this that seems to disagree with that, but understand it's coming from a different point of view. Does that help? Okay. Marion. I agree with what you just said. Um, and I do believe that there's so much in the Bible that's um, historical. So there are there's so much history there that we can learn of. Um, but also in Hebrews 4.12 it says, For the word of God is living and active. So for me, that means that God has a part in this word. And that when we do read it, and I know that this from, from my own experience, when I read things, I ask for discernment. And God gives me um, discernment for the word and helps me to understand it. Um, so I just, there's a contradiction there. You know, for me, I've always believed that God inspired the word. Um, and I still feel at times that he helps us decipher the word. And where we can read one scripture one way one day, then six months later we see it in a totally different way because of where we are in our lives at that moment. So can you speak to the word being living and active? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. This was not planned, by the way, between us. Feeding me the the pre-programmed question. There are three basic ways of looking at Scripture. Remember when I spoke about this spectrum of, of scriptural interpretation? Three basic ways. One is the, the, the conservative way, or the evangelical way. The, the, um, the Bible is the Word of God. Okay? That's what we talked about. Every single word and all of it is the Word of God inspired. The words on the page are inspired. On the other side, on the more liberal side, the Bible contains the word of God is the way they would understand it. So they would say that there are the, the God's word, inspired word, is in the scripture, but not all of it is inspired. Then right in the middle is the neo-Orthodox position. And their position is the Bible becomes the word of God. Now what are they talking about here? They're talking about an inspired author who puts down words on a page. And I liken it to a a gifted composer who hears a song in his or her head and puts down the music manuscript. Now we've got a page with all these squiggles on it and lines and bars and measures and so on and so forth. And we call that music. But is it really music? It's just squiggles on a page. But you take that page and you put it in the hands of a skilled performer and suddenly it becomes the music that was in the composer's head before he or she put it down on the page. So the printed music becomes the medium for connecting the spirit of the performer to the spirit of the author. And I believe that that analogy holds for inspired scripture as well, because I do believe that the scripture is inspired. I don't just look at it as another ancient text. 
But I do believe with the neo-orthodoxers that it becomes the word of God, just like Marion said. You can read a scripture at a certain time and place in your life, read it again, even just a month or two later, and it hits you in a completely different way because you are playing the scriptures. You are the gifted performer who is reading the music and playing it out in your life. The, the medium of the scripture is connecting our spirit to the spirit of those inspired authors who are connected to God's spirit, right? And if A equals B and B equals C, then guess what? A equals C. This connects us directly to God through the medium of this. But it's not just the words on the paper. It is our interaction with it. God's word is living and active because I have felt that for half my life. It has changed my life. And it changes more and more as I grow and change as well. It's always equal and always above. Wherever I get, no matter how evolved I think I get, I can read scripture and it's always a step ahead, leading me someplace new if I will allow it to. And that's how I believe that it is living and active, even though it still was a human expression at the beginning, inspired by the relationship with God, both individually and corporately as a nation. Is that good enough for now, Marion? Okay. Jim. Um, this is a hard question to ask because it's it's got a lot of different different aspects of it. As hard long as it's not hard to answer, I'm good with it. Okay. <laughs> or hard for me to understand. <laughs> Um, part of it is is related to the Trinity, um, how I understand the Trinity. Also, you, you got to remember, I was raised Catholic, educated Catholic, so everything is looking through a Catholic filter. And what I was taught was that the Trinity was comprised of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In my mind, the Son is Christ. When, when Jesus was born, in my mind, um, he, he is also a part of that trinity. Like, I don't see a difference between Jesus and Christ. And, and sometimes I, I think I hear something from you that maybe implies that. I just know that my antenna go up when I hear something that, like, goes against what I've always believed. And I'm also a pretty literal believer. Like, you know, I, I have a hard time going into the gray. You know, it either is or it isn't. So, so when Jesus, if I see Jesus as the Christ, which at some point in his ministry, he, he says, yes, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. Does that mean that he came off of his off of the throne? You know what happened to the three um, godheads: you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I mean, I, I never struggled with that before until I hear something that that makes me, you know, just question something. And that's what happens a lot of times for me here at the effect. So, what is the question? You know. Is Jesus the same 
God that is the tr- that is a part of the Trinity. Okay. Yeah. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> We're way past my favorite color, aren't we? But that, that, this is perfect, Jim. This is great. I mean, this is, this is the kind of stuff that we want to talk about, right? Because as we push out into this, this Father's love, all these implications that we've been taught since we were, because I grew up Catholic, you all grew up Catholic, you all, you know, and, and even if you grew up evangelical, it's still going to be the same kind of push. So how do we process this? Okay, let me, let's start back with the Trinity, first of all. The Trinity is, <laughs> the Trinity was, in the fourth century, basically a political decision. It was a way of trying to understand something and put it down on paper in a way that would hold the church together. Okay, so Constantine was trying to rebuild the empire after it was cut in quadrants by his predecessor. And, and he saw Christianity as a glue. We don't know if he really believed in Christianity. He wasn't baptized till the end of his life. I know I'm getting off a little bit, but all these things fire in my head. But here's, here's the idea. The Jews were fiercely monotheistic. They were the first ones to be monotheistic, and they hung on to that tooth and nail. For Jesus to declare himself God was why they killed him, right? And so anything, like I said, he was the one without opposite. That's one of the names of God, of uh, Hebrew name of God. Nothing could oppose God. So how in the world? But now these followers of Jesus, what did they just experience? They had experienced God as the Father. God is the King of the universe. God is the Creator of all things. But now they've also experienced Him as Jesus, who was their friend. That they got to hug His neck and eat with Him and run around with Him. They saw Him as a, a living human being. And now he's gone, and they've also experienced God as spirit. Not as distant spirit somewhere up on Mount Olympus or on a mountaintop, but right here, breathing inside their own chests. What do you do with that? What do you do with these various experiences of God now that you've actually lived them? And who is Jesus? This consumed the church for the first 300 years, and it was fought all over the place. Arianism was the largest expression of it. Arianism, Arius, saw Jesus as subservient to the Father, as a created being to the Father. And that was tearing the church up with the other half that said more like what Jim was just saying. No, he was co-equal with the Father. And so the First Council of Nicaea was called in 324 by Constantine to try to decide and, and he, that was his, his uh, mandate to the bishops there, some 1,800 of them from all over the, uh, the Mediterranean. You guys got to decide this. It's tearing the whole empire apart. And so they did. And the way that they came down on it was that we have three equal personalities in one Godhead. Still one God, but three equal personalities that are created of the same substance. So that's what the Trinity doctrine says. But what does it mean? See, nobody can really parse that because it's not rational. And so there's been all different ways of looking at it. Oh, modality. Modalism means that God is one God, but he operates as Father in creation, as salvation in the Son, Jesus, and as sanctification in the Spirit. And so there's different modes or modalities that God is working, but it's still just one God. The one I like the best is the perichoresis of the, of the ancient Greek fathers. Basically, that means a circle dance. It's one of those whirling dervish kind of dances that the, the Greeks did traditionally. And so they saw it as a blur of motion, where these separate personalities were always in motion, and they blurred into one thing. But they all had different personalities and different functions and so on and so forth, but it's still one God. But does that really solve the issue? No, of course it doesn't in terms of what we understand. 
the way that I approach this then is that what is Jesus showing us of the Father? And what did he say about his relationship with the Father? His best statement of identity was that I and the Father are one. And then when Philip asks him to show him the Father, he says, you've already seen me, Philip. You don't need to see the Father. You're seeing me. I take Jesus at his word that he was one with and identical with God the Father. Now, how did he get there? That's another question. So Jesus, when he comes out of the desert and he's living his, his ministry, he is one with the Father. He says, I don't do anything of my own initiative. Everything I do is the Father doing it through me. I'm basically one with. Right? But how did he become that? And did he become that? Or was he born that? The way that we were taught, he was born as God in human form. And he was always that. And he always knew that. But the scripture seems to tell us something different. Luke 2 tells us specifically that he grew in wisdom and stature. All the, the, the uh, synoptic gospels have a story of him going into the wilderness directly after he is baptized by his cousin. For he is driven to the point of exhaustion. And he has to face down these three temptations, which again, three perfect number is the sum of everything that we as human beings need to face down in our lives. You know, the, the, the will to power, the will to uh, relevance, the will to uh, attention and spectacular nature. Those are the basic pulls that we use to try to find our own way rather than to rely on God. And he has to face those down just like everybody else had to as well. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was human in every single way that we are human. And Jesus tells us that we will do the things that he does if we follow his ways, and even greater things than he has done. So to, to answer Jim's question sideways, in a way that is also speaking to purpose, I believe that Jesus and the Father are one, which means that Jesus and the Christ are one. Right? They are identical and the same. I believe then when Paul talks about the kenosis, the emptying, that forgetting everything that he had, Jesus emptied himself and was born as a humble human being. I believe he was born into the brainwashed forgetting that each one of us is born into and had to remember who he was. And that's really the task of every single one of us. What is our spiritual formation? What is our spiritual walk if it's not remembering who we really are? At one point, we talked about the ugly duckling that has to remember that it's a swan, right? But it was really Hans Christian Andersen, who was actually a illegitimate child of a prince. And it was his story of remembering who he was or finding out who he was. And the truth of the matter is, we're all royalty. We are all royalty. We are all sons and daughters of the king. But we don't know that when we're born, and our whole life is about remembering, and remembering so deeply and so securely that it changes the way that we live our lives. It changes the attitude with which we live our lives. And I believe that Jesus had to do the same thing, because if he didn't, then he isn't a way shower. He doesn't show us how it's possible for us to do what he did. And he keeps telling us, that's what you need to do. You need to do what I'm doing if you ever want to find this truth that will set you free. So I think that Jesus was born 
who he was, but he had to remember who he was. And that was the whole process of his life. And then his mission is to teach us to do exactly the same thing. So I guess, you know, we're talking about maybe not exactly semantics, but logistics and procedure, you know. How did Jesus become? Did he become? Was he always? These are questions that we really can't answer and you'll need to answer for yourself. The way that I'm parsing it right now is the way that, to me, is most consistent with what I see in the scriptures, but it also speaks to the purpose. Jesus' purpose was to show us how to remember who we are in his Father. And he had to do that as well. Is that close enough to where we're going here? You know, now one of the things that this also does, and this is where it gets really controversial, is um, if the Christ is the you know unseen second person of the Trinity, and Jesus is the incarnation or the physical representation of that Trinity of that second person, does that second person have universal access to everyone? In other words, does everyone need to know about Jesus of Nazareth, the human being, the historical man, in order to be able to access Christ and thereby access God? Or is that Christ accessible to everyone if they are living as Jesus lived? He said that you're my followers not because you profess a certain truth or understand a theology in a way. You're my followers if you simply love one another. And that's how everyone will know you're my follower, by the way that you love one another. If you are involved in that kind of love, if you are living like Jesus, have you accessed the Christ? Or do you also need to understand Jesus culturally, historically, theologically, in order to be saved? Well, there's a $64,000 question as well. But that, I think, are also implications of Jim's question. You know, this is how far it goes. Did it go far enough for now, Jim? Follow up? Okay. Okay. All right. And, and you know what? How many times? I want to make sure I say this probably every time at bat here. I'm telling you what I'm convinced of. I'm not telling you what's right. I'm telling you what I'm convinced of. How can I know what's right? Well, you say you go to Scripture for that. That's how we know what's right. Well, whose version of Scripture? And whose interpretation of Scripture? Because there are people interpreting Scripture as I am and saying what I'm saying. And there's people interpreting Scripture the way, you know, died in the world Catholics and evangelicals, and they're using the same passages but interpreting them differently. Ultimately, it comes down to what your interpretation is. That's the one you're responsible for, not mine or anybody else's. And you can gather a multitude of counsel like we're told to do in Scripture, but ultimately you've got to make the decision. What is it that you are convinced of? Now, Jim says he wants to stay convinced of what he's convinced of, and that's beautiful. You know, there's no reason for him to change an iota here. Here's the acid test. Is what you are convinced of, does what you are convinced of, allow you to accept life on life's terms, whatever it is presenting at the moment, and still live with a sense of hope and gratitude? Can you do that? If you can, I would say your personal theology is just fine. But keep in mind, 
you're only one trauma away from having to revamp the entire thing, right? Because it's the traumas in life that pull away the curtain and strip us down to our core constituency again and then have to decide, does what I believe still allow me to accept life on life's terms and live with hope and gratitude? Because if it doesn't anymore, then I need to expand. I need to move. That's why the difficulties in life grow us up, because they are constantly challenging what we have become comfortable with, complacent with, and allowing us to expand. So I am not giving you any hard and fast answers, as I said in the beginning. This is what I'm convinced of. But I'm hoping that as I explain this, as, as Jim was saying, it gives him something to chew on. Great. Chew on it. doesn't mean that you need to end up where I am at all. That's not the point of all this. The point is to do your own chewing, to engage the journey, to become remembrant. Is that a word? Of who you really are? <laughs> yeah. Judy. This will have to be the last one, but I can tell that we've got a lot more going on here. So just so you know, we're going to do this again next Sunday, okay? Yeah. We'll, we'll just, we'll, I'll do this all month. I don't care. You know, if this, is, if this is the best thing we can do, then this is exactly what we should do. Okay, Judy. Okay. I'm, um, thank you for adding that last piece onto what, what Jim was asking. Um, I'm an application person. You know, I love ideas, I love the abstract, but then at some point I need to figure out how to apply this to what's going on in my life. And what you just said about love God and love others, that that was the core of Jesus' message, has helped me so much in new ways when I'm dealing with um, a, a, a daughter of mine and, and her husband that are, uh, my daughter has some kind of spiritual connection, but she was wounded by Christianity and she doesn't want to hear about Jesus. And that, um, that unsettled me for many years and it drove some disconnection in the way that I treated her based on what I knew at the time from the Christian teachings that I was getting. Um, her lifestyle, I was questioning. Um, and, and I've come to believe through absorbing and immersing myself in your messages over time that if, if I want to stay in connection with the people that I love, and I'm feeling disrupted in one way or another um, by their behavior, that that is, and I've got feelings about that, that are coming up and are getting in the way, that that is my journey to resolve and, and to not impose these, these hidden beliefs and expectations oftentimes that are exposed by those rumblings in my heart. And, and it has helped me to accept my daughter's journey and wherever her husband is, which is not, not at all clear to me, but she, he's being influenced by at least the spiritual path that she's on. 
and it and it has helped me accept that even though she doesn't accept Jesus as the teachings from the teachings that she received it has helped me still be in connection with her and to allow her to find her way and to pray over her and her husband that that God is still present with both of them no matter what they believe she can do her tarot card readings and you know give her 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 guidance to people that she comes in contact with but that that has helped me navigate how i stay in connection with people when i used to judge and and offer my opinions and my ideas and it would just drive me apart from the people that i loved and i i'm the the question that you answered i think is is provides comfort to me in my journey that if i stay on this path and and stop trying um, to to live by the inclusion exclusion messages i was given earlier in time that i can stay more true to following jesus's way um but it it is so and it's for me it's just kind of um i struggle with sometimes the the piece about um how i stay responsible for my life but how do i stay in union with others um when there's still there's still doubts or or differences or things that unsettle me and and that i want to offer those opinions but but i i've been learning restraint you know and just being able to be present i'd love to get guidance you know that's that's beautiful um <laughs> there's so much there um paul says that you know when when he's talking about this divide between the 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 Jewish followers of Jesus and the Gentile followers of Jesus he says you know for some people certain things are a sin but it's not a sin to another so if it's a sin for you well then don't do it but don't impose your view on the other person that they can't do it either because that's that doesn't follow right so when it comes to something like tarot cards right for for a lot of us we would consider that a sin now what is a sin a sin isn't just something that's unlawful a sin biblically speaking is separation that which separates is sinful that which joins together is righteous now sometimes that corresponds with what's lawful and lawful un- unlawful but not all the time you know we ask that all the time you know is it always wrong to uh, is lying always wrong well no sometimes it's righteous because the righteous thing to do is to lie to preserve life to preserve relationship Right so we need to make sure that we understand that. Now for many of us to get involved in the occult or get involved in tarot cards would be very divisive, very separating from us and our sense of who God is. It's something we shouldn't do. But if it didn't, is it still a sin? See, these are the kind of things that we need to really start to think about as we think about our faith and not just re, you know, revert back to, you know, the, the teachings from our childhood or hard letter 
you know, black and white, on and off binary sort of systems because that gets us into the place of true intolerance and inability to relate with people that aren't exactly like us. Jesus was able to relate with everybody, whether they were a Roman centurion or a Samaritan woman or anything in between. He was able to do that. How did he do that? I believe it's because he was using these principles that we're talking about right now. And that's how we need to, to move forward. You know what? I don't know exactly how salvation works, but I do know absolutely that I'm not supposed to judge. So why am I fighting about the thing that I can't really know or ever know I'm never going to get unanimity on? Why fight that battle when I know that I'm just not supposed to judge someone else? I can do that. And it makes life so much easier. It allows me to relate to people that don't look like me, eat like me, and, and connect with them in the way that Jesus said, if you can love the enemy, you're practicing the highest form of love that there is. Let's do that. Let's start there. And then let's see how that impinges. Let's see how that allows us to work out our ideas of salvation. But if you start with the love, if you start with immersing yourself in looking like Jesus, I do believe that all the theological issues will take care of themselves for you and you will become convinced of something that then you can express to somebody else and let them disagree with you as they will. And it won't bother you. Because if we move further and further into love, the less and less offendable we become at the same time. And that's kind of a show that we are getting there. Okay, we better stop at this point. Yeah, I know, the time just flew by. But let's do it again next week. And like I said, if we'll do it, we need to do it the, uh, the week after, we'll do it. This is, I think, the most important thing that we can do is to really work through these. Those of you who have been here for a few years have been immersed in this, just like um, Doug was saying at the outset. Those of you who have been here shorter, and especially the red letter study is bringing it all right to a head. That's the beauty of the red letter study, right? So let's talk through that. Let's consolidate now. Let's see where we can agree, where we don't agree. That's okay. But then we can continue the conversation from there. And now you know that you know how this works. Be thinking about questions that you would like to ask and the way that we're, we're formatted here. And please bring them with you next week. And Beth, who sent me one that she really wanted answered, well, I'll, I'll lead off with that one next week. So we make sure we get Beth's in um, from Phoenix because uh, she wanted a, a question answered as well. And we'll kind of go from there. Sound good? All right. Thanks for playing. Thanks for being here, everybody. All right. Let's all stand.